Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal. Each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices in a very casual and informal way. This is not a webinar or lecture, rather our goal is to talk about key topics and challenges in a very informal way and share best practices. I'm your host Naveen Agarwal and I'm the principal and founder at Achieve where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. My guest in this episode is Randy Horton. Randy is the Chief Solutions Officer at Orthogonal, where he's helping medical device companies leverage technologies such as Bluetooth, smartphone apps, and the cloud to build and launch the next generation of software-based medical devices. Randy talks about why a risk-based approach is now needed more than ever to build these next generation of medical devices, which are going to be working on the cloud in a massive scale. We had this conversation in front of a live audience as part of our weekly Let's Talk Risk live audio events on LinkedIn. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So with that, uh, Randy, I want to welcome you, and uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, please start by introducing yourself to our audience today. Sure. No, thanks for having me. This is uh, it's always great to have a conversation and talk to other people in industry and frankly have other people in industry push back on our ideas and, and uh, you know, throw darts at them. It's how it's how it's how the ideas get stronger. Um, so I like you said, I work at Orthogonal. Orthogonal got into this business to improve patient outcomes faster. The way we do it is by working with companies building regulated medical device software. Um, specifically software as a medical device, digital therapeutics or connected device systems, or as I like to say, all the software that's regulated as part of a medical device, unless it's physically inside a medical device. So for those of you who are more technical, we don't do firmware, we don't do embedded, we do all the connected pieces, apps, cloud backends, AI integration, EHR integration, those kinds of things. And kind of the way we help companies, we like to say we, we, we help companies move faster and improve patient outcomes faster, is we were actually, we're not born in med tech. Um, I think we're the sort of only pure play CMD firm that was actually born in the world of lean and agile, user-centered design, systems thinking, and all these sort of modern methods that have been incredibly effective at other industries in, in accelerating change. And we got a taste of med tech 12, 13 years ago. We worked on the first Roche AccuCheck. And mm -hmm. I think, as I like to joke, in a fit of masochism, decided that this was an amazing opportunity to take everything we'd learned and fuse it with our industry's focus on compliance, really compliance in enablement of safety and effectiveness in a way that doesn't just say, oh, we can be lean and agile and user-centered, but still be compliant. But we can really bring these two worlds together in an exciting way that fundamentally raises the bar on how we consider safety and effectiveness. We can do everything better, essentially, with these modern product management and software engineering methods. Got you. So that's a quick intro. So it, it, to me, it seems like we are really entering a brave new world here, right? With technology moving so fast, medical devices are really changing. And you are at the cutting edge. So, Andy, can you help our audience understand where we are moving to with all this SAMD and connected devices? And what's the most exciting thing happening today? Yeah, I don't think I can cover the full waterfront um, in any sense, but I can talk about something that we're very involved in, um, both as a company with our own work and in industry, in terms of collaborations and guidance that we're really excited about. Um, it started when um, Pat Baird, who probably many of you know from Philips, pulled us into an engagement with a uh, Amy AAMI 
to do a consensus report on if you're going to put functions of your medical device uh, on computers on the public cloud, which essentially means computers that you you run and you buy, you buy on demand from Amazon, Microsoft, or Google, they're the biggest of the players, these public cloud providers. If you're not controlling the computer directly, how do you know that it's still safe and effective? So I'll, yeah. uh, I can drive into this a little bit more. So historically, I think we all know medical devices, if they phoned home or if they had some server side processing, you know, either it was an, an algorithm for doing, you know, really intense AI analysis of a, uh, an MRI, for instance, you know, looking to diagnose something, um, or it was a, a glucose monitor, or insulin pump, or implantable that was phoning home and sending data back. That set in the, that generally sat in a data center that was owned and operated by the medical device manufacturer, and they were responsible for the servers, for the operating system, for the patches, for cybersecurity, for ensuring there was enough disk, there's enough bandwidth, backup, all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and that works okay, but that's not really the core business of a medical device manufacturer. The core business of theirs is the device itself. And what's really emerged over the last, uh, coming up on 20 years now, is this idea that you could outsource the infrastructure plumbing to uh, basically to these big players, Amazon, Microsoft, or Google, and you just provision what you need as needed. It's public cloud computing. Mm -hmm. So it's really turning cloud computing into sort of a, you know, on-demand computing. It could be at the highest level of software as a service, or it could be platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, but you don't then have to worry about redundancy and backups. You just let them take that all up, all up your hands. Yeah. And I think in general, people intuitively go, yeah, I'm never going to be as good at my company. I don't care what budget we have as you know, Microsoft at cybersecurity. I'm never going to have a thousand people who are all top of their game, making huge salaries, getting up every day and solely worrying about cybersecurity of my servers. Mm -hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense intuitively. So I'm going to essentially hand over responsibility. I'm going to I'm going to procure a service from them, procure offerings, and, and let them directly control it, and I'll indirectly control it under SLAs. Mm -hmm. Which sounds great, except here's what's interesting: once you dig into how they do that and how they make sure that they never lose power or internet connection or run out of AC parts that keep you know keep the servers cooled or are on, you know, the absolute top of their game on cybersecurity mm -hmm. is because they make thousands of changes a day to those systems. Yeah. And they don't check with you in advance because you couldn't even keep up with it. They just do it. And that's what you're paying them for. Right. So now we have this inherent conflict where medical devices aren't supposed to be updated unless we've run it through the paces that have, you know, have confirmed that we're okay with it. You know, that could be, that could end up resulting, it's all documented. It could be in a letter to file. It could be in a refiling. Instead, we're saying, no, 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 our medical devices, the, the underpinnings of it, this almost like the cardiopulmonary system of the of the medical device is going to be updated nonstop. Mm -hmm. So how do we how do we how do we know that it none, one of those changes didn't inadvertently affect our medical device, you know, make it stop operating properly? And so yeah. the guidance we worked on together with a bunch of major medical device manufacturers, Mayo Clinic, uh, Amazon, Google. Um, and the FDA has been engaged is, you know what, we can do this and it's a, it's a good trade-off. You're fundamentally still going to be better with servers, you know, hosted by somebody who's really, really good at that, but you need to acknowledge out loud that you don't have direct control and then take a risk-based approach to managing that and deciding what you can and can't put in the cloud and what, what, what it's safe to give up control on. Um, yeah. which sounds kind of, oh, it says it. It's brilliantly obvious, <laughs> but nobody had really, I think the, the thing was that nobody had really said it out loud before this group of people came together. And I was frankly just 
I was organizing meetings. I didn't appreciate kind of what we were coming to, but this idea that <laughs> it's okay to not fully be in control if you admit it and manage to it and design to it. But if you're not aware of it or you can't admit it, then you've got a problem. You know. So Randy, I, I know that we talk about a risk-based approach uh, in, in our business almost everywhere. Uh, what does it mean? Tangibly, what in, in, like? Can you give an example of what a risk-based approach a manufacturer of a device that's going to now be connected to this massive cloud? Uh, what would be an example of a risk-based approach for that manufacturer to consider? Uh, sure. So a, a very basic one that um, I think is obvious is certain device, certain medical device functions should probably never go in the cloud. Period. Okay. Uh -huh. If it's something that's real time. Um, and there's, you know, serious risk to it. Think about, you know, the um, elemental science, I think is the name of the company. They're developing a wearable defibrillator for, you know, 30 days after you have major surgery and under general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. it's literally just, you strap it on your chest, you stick it on your chest, and, you know, it'll, it'll give a little shock if it perceives you having a heart, heart attack. Mm -hmm. You're not going to move that monitoring and that algorithm that diagnoses a heart attack and gives the order to execute, you know, a shock to your body, mm -hmm. you're not going to move that to a, a smartphone or the cloud because Bluetooth connection lost or, you know, internet connection lost is not an option. Right. On the other hand, um, not knowing anything about this company, I think there's a very, I put money down that I'm sure they're sending the data back to the cloud, not for real time analysis, but for, you know, long-term machine mm. learning, understanding the individual patient, or patients writ large to improve these algorithms, improve customization. But the pieces they're doing, if connection's lost, it's okay. It'll catch up when it reconnects. Yeah. yeah, that's a great example because I think now we are having to sit down and think about the consequences of any interruption in let's say data transmission or any other loss of information. What happens, right? What happens next? So we have to build that sequence of events and eventually how it might affect the patient to make that decision about what functionality should be within the device, what functionality should go to the cloud. Is, is, do I understand that correctly? Yeah, yeah, and there's a larger engineering shift, which is not not a med tech thing, this is just broader in software engineering, which is from this idea that, you know, we'll make devices designed to never break to making devices on the assumption that they're gonna break all the time. So instead of being shocked and terrified when they break and focusing on sort of redundancy. I'm going to have a second and third and fourth data center and backups here and there. Instead, you focus on resiliency. Wow. Um, and that's mm -hmm. the, and the cloud providers pushed up. The, the chief technology officer at um, Amazon Web Services famously said uh, a while ago, like 15 years ago, everything breaks all the time. Start with that premise. As opposed to being surprised when things break and scrambling like it's an emergency, let's just assume they're going to break and be really proactive in designing for that. Yeah. And monitoring for it and recovering from it. So, Randy, before I lose this uh, train of thought, uh, just before we went live, you shared with me a great metaphor of the world medical devices are moving to. And I would love for you to share that with our audience as well, because uh, I want people to yeah. picture this, visualize this. Yes, and I apologize to, I see a couple names of people who logged in here have heard this before, so you'll have to bear with us on this metaphor. But um, the metaphor we like to use is that I think historically we viewed change control around medical devices. You made your medical device like a fortress, you know, a castle with a moat around it. Mm -hmm. And you built it to last, it was stable, and you didn't just make changes to a castle willy-nilly, you made it so it was impossible for somebody to attack it. You know, these things 
they were they were built to defend because you knew that the version you had released of your device worked. You know, you knew it was safe and effective, and nobody was going to touch that and potentially affect it. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a, you know, that's a reasonable metaphor. I feel good having used devices my whole life where people took that approach. Mm-hmm. But I think a more modern way to look at it is more medical devices, almost like container ships, carrying shipping containers around the world. Mm-hmm. So if, if, you, if you think about it, the entire global commerce depends on shipping containers, right? And standardized shipping containers going all over. One of the reasons there's so much inflation right now is because there's shipping containers, container ships backed up all over the world that can't unload their stuff and get it to where ports are. So there's shortages of things. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, a shipping container, its job is to get safely from A to B and move the cargo, but it is definitely not the shipping container's world. It's not a fortress. It's the ocean's world. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You're subject to the ocean. So what do you do? You know, you design your shipping container to certain levels of engineering and, you know, certain levels of performance. I, I'm not a, I'm not no marine person, you know, I, 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 I'm not an expert on this, but presumably there's all kinds of training you do, there's yeah. standard operating procedures, there's regular maintenance you do. Um, you also get real-time data, right? Mm-hmm. So you can monitor the weather now, and that's an advantage. You can get satellite updates. If you see bad weather coming, presumably they can reroute the ship around that yeah. and try and avoid it. And worst comes to worst, you know, if the ship's going down, somebody sends out the Coast Guard to at least rescue the crew. Yeah. And so I think we need to think about all the medical devices out there in the world operating, sort of, particularly ones that are moving from points of care to points of living. You know, they're on the person they're using at home, at the mall, you know, and you know, on the bus, wherever. Um, that's the world we're living in, and we should start to think about how we engineer our devices and support them, assuming that they're out there somewhere on the ocean. Yeah. And then I think it'd be happening. So to me, it looks like surveillance becomes very important, and continuing to build resiliency becomes very important. Yeah, right? Absolutely. So this Absolutely. is a this is a new world, right? And I think if there are quality regulatory risk practitioners in our audience today, they might be wondering, "Hey, what can I do to keep up with this? This is going to be a new world, new way of doing work within our company, new expectations. Would you have some advice for our colleagues to really keep in mind as they think about their career?" Yeah, um well, one thing I would say immediately is this has all been published in a 10-page form, uh, Amy Consensus Report uh, 510, which is about the uh, appropriate use. I think I don't have the exact title. It's the appropriate use of uh, the public cloud to operate medical device functions. And we are getting hopefully close to publishing uh, the follow-on technical information report, which is sort of the much expanded version of that, uh, TR-115. I'm Fingers crossed, or knock on wood, I'm hoping we'll have that out Q1 of next year, or that that'll be approved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would definitely recommend reading that. I think there's there's a lot that's in that. But the other thing I'd say, that what I've learned is, what's really neat about this industry that my census differentiates med tech from a lot of other regulated industries. There's a huge opportunity to actually influence and contribute to how things are done. We don't just sit back in this industry, nor are we encouraged to by the regulators and wait for them to hand down regulations from on high. There's really this view that we're in this together and that because we as med tech professionals are in the weeds, we're better positioned in some ways mm-hmm. to offer solutions if we can all agree and trust that we're all in this for the common good. Um, and so there's this opportunity to not just understand how you're regulated, but shape how that happens at a, at a more detailed level beyond Congress you know, on a day-to-day. Yeah. So I'd say to everybody is this is a career growth thing, but it's also a uh, an opportunity for you as a professional. Get involved, you know, join the standards yeah. group, join a, 
there's a number of different sort of opportunities to you know to, to interact and shape these things with you know it could be a formal standard um you know through aami it could be you know position papers and guidance and working groups from from raps or uh, the healthcare products collaborative hpc which is the former xavier health xavier medcon mm-hmm. uh, mdic these are all great places and along the way you're gonna meet some really good people with great ideas you'll expand your network you'll push your thinking and yeah. really i believe from what i've seen you can really bring a lot of value back the next day from these from these things to your job that's awesome it's so, such an inspiring message from you because I, I see this like a leadership opportunity for all of us so guys this is a perfect time to uh, open the floor for some conversation i know james you have already joined us so please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind hi there folks i hope you can hear me yes good um it was just really vis-a-vis this whole area we've been we have a working group that i sit on which is called the slightly long term but it's the sccc service assurance working group okay and we're very interested in how do we assure the safety of services like cloud services bought-in services etc and we're now on version three about to go to version four of our guidance we've got it's about a hundred page guidance on how do you assure services that you're buying in mm-hmm. what do you need to do it's not the answer we don't know the answer yet folks but we're working on it and we it, it's of great interest to numerous people in numerous sectors because we are buying so many more services That sounds terrific. And in fact, we've tried to avail ourselves of other sort of industries where uptime and these kinds of things are critical, either safety critical or business critical, and frankly, have not had great success finding stuff. So so learning about these things is terrific if you can share the information on that. I love that. that The people involved are military, rail, highways, multiple sectors. Actually, I know we do have one medical person on it. But it's t- it's a big working group for many sectors. So look it up. That's yeah. awesome, That's James. Great. Thank you for sharing that, and I love this kind of collaboration uh, possibility to our to our discussion here today. Thank you for sharing, uh, Steve. Uh, welcome to our conversation today. Please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Thank you. I'm happy to. Uh, how's the sound quality? Great, Steve. We can hear you loud and clear. Fantastic. So first, I, I can't help but just like smile and appreciate the medtech community because I think the world of both Naveen and Randy, I consider them to be friends um, and I've never met either of them in person. I mean, medtech, it's just a space where people start contacting and have conversations with each other um, and it's an extremely open and collaborative space. So that's just a, that's just a delight. Um, this is a really good conversation and I'm just interested in your perspective, Randy, and yours Naveen as well. How much, given the fact that these types of changes in regulatory approaches need to take place to accommodate innovation, right? How adept either are external stakeholders or at FDA at dividing lines between where traditional regulatory approaches are fine and, and they can persist versus where changes actually need to happen because of the innovative nature of um, technology or information use. Sometimes, obviously, there will be devices that are just standard devices without technological characteristics. And I'm just curious in your view of whether or not 
the innovation that's happening in regulatory approaches also poses a risk of creeping into those standard regulatory spaces. Interesting. Randy, go ahead. Please share your thought if you have something here. Uh, I'd like to use a lifeline for that one and call my friend Steve Stillman. <laughs> Steve's got a lot of expertise in this area. <laughs> I love it. Love it. No, I mean, I think, Steve, these are fuzzy boundaries. I'm not going to pretend to prognosticate, but the world's getting awfully blurry. And I think we're going to, we're, we're all realizing that we have to figure out how do we get back to the principles underneath these things? You know, if the goal is safety and effectiveness, how do we do that? Acknowledging that there's new ways to achieve it and better ways to achieve it, right? As, as opposed to getting stuck in that, the how, this is how we do it. It's why are we doing it? And going mm -hmm. back to that, does yeah. the FDA have the budget and authorization to do everything they might need to do? Probably not. And I say with all due respect to our elected officials, they have the worst board of directors in America. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I cannot imagine trying to be responsive to a board of directors like that. You know, that, you know, it changes every two years and everything. Yeah. Um, but, and I, I'm sure there are places where they could use some more legislative authority, but it seems to me there's a lot of really great stuff that can happen now if people can get the time to work together on it. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Well, I, I think I would say that it, my, my feeling here is that now, even more than ever, we need to talk more with each other. Now, yeah. more than ever, we need to collaborate. And we need to be sort of uh, honest and transparent with each other. I know there are commercial interests. I know there are other sort of concerns. But I think our industry, my perception in medtech is we are still operating as if the world has not changed in the last 20 years. We are still operating in our silos. So we are trying to break that through conversations like this. So I'm not gonna resolve this question very quickly, but I think if people uh, come up, raise their hands and say, you know, I'm passionate about this. I want to take a leadership role in this. Things can happen. Like Randy, you were saying, get involved. Okay. Uh, I don't want to take up too much time just speaking myself. So I want to invite David here, who has been waiting patiently to please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Thank you, Naveen. It's funny, Stephen, hearing your thoughts. I, I feel the same way. Um, Randy, I, I appreciate everything you're talking about. And I, I'm curious, Looking at SAMD as a component of the whole system, a system that is producing safety, for example, um, from a from a system thinking perspective, how how does this compare to like other parts, like the human part and the uh, design part and the post market part, and all of these parts really are connected in some way. I, I'm curious. What are the methods and techniques that you're using uh, to examine this? And are you using and or familiar with some of the work of Nancy Levison at MIT? I am not. So if you could give a little background on the principles of it, I can. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can, I can send you let, some. Let me be clear, by yeah. the way, I'm an American history major who got a C plus in statistics because I skipped an exam <laughs> to into a concert, but we're marrying oh Neptune. We must be brothers. Good. I, I am not an engineer here, so <laughs> look at this. No problem. So, Randy, I think what David is, is referring to is a lot of work being done in the system safety space, and uh, we have a lot of experts here today in our audience, as well as uh, a few other folks. Uh, we have talked about it. So, David, I think this will be sort of uh, another good topic to talk about, but I, Randy, if you can reflect on David's big picture question in terms of how do we 
handle all these interconnected elements right. in our well, system. The fundamental principles, the good news is, is I think the fundamental principles are there. What's the, um, what's the Bruce Sperling, the science fiction author has that quote, you know, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> if you want to know what disruptive change is going to be, it's not going to be something you didn't imagine. It's going to be somebody who takes six or seven things already out there and finds the unique combination to put them together. Right. And we, we've seen that over and over. Um, it's applied science, you know, in creative ways. And so there's fundamental techniques, you know, you break a big problem down into its constituent problems, right? You, 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 you define clear interfaces between systems, right? So you, you don't have blurry lines, you don't have spaghetti code, as we used to say in the old days. Uh -huh. um, and then I think there's fundamentally the principles that come from, you know, Deming and Boyd, I say, as a, someone who got a C plus in statistics, but just it's shift left. The more you can collaboratively solve problems across disciplines earlier on, and the shorter the iteration cycles to identify points of risk and de-risk them, the better off we're going to be. Now, that's really, really hard, right? Because that's organizational change as much as anything else. Yes. You want human factors and user experience and systems engineering, and you're laying the groundwork for fantastic abilities to do post-market surveillance. That's not easy stuff. Yeah. But organizations can build up the muscles. I mean, the ones that do it, and I don't, I, I, I say that acknowledging I don't think they have it as hard as we do because human lives depend on us. But software as a service companies have gotten really, really good at shifting left and integrating those functions and accelerating things with quality. Um, I don't think we copy them wholesale. I think there's things we have to do differently because we do have to take a risk-based approach for a very good reason. But the, those answers are, are, are out there. And I yeah. think there's a lot of people exploring them. Honestly, the biggest thing that concerns me is... Sometimes I worry that to get this right, it's really, really, it takes really, really smart, broad thinkers, and there's just not enough of them in the world. <laughs> well, what we are hoping, Andy, with these conversations, I think we, all of us are going to get inspired and do yeah. more, do more. So, great thought. Vikas, I know you have been waiting for a while, uh, but we are running short on time. So, please unmute your mic, share what you have in mind briefly, please. Thank you. Yeah. Uh Thanks for this opportunity. Thanks, Randy, for sharing your interesting perspective. Uh, I would like to know your opinion, especially on when we say a resilient medical device. So does the manufacturer has to think beyond the compliance and risk management to build a resilient medical device? Beyond compliance and risk management. Um, yeah, so uh, let me put something out there. And this is something I hear from other people in the industry. There's what we have to do to demonstrate to the regulator that we believe we have a safe and effective device, right? And the regulations are a proxy way to induce the right behaviors. Then there's what we actually consider to be an acceptable medical device. And they're not always the same. And, and the example I give is, you know, we've talked to people with very consumer focused things like, like diabetes, insulin pumps, glucose monitors. And they say, yeah, you know, there's a certain level of testing we have to do to prove it's safe. That does not mean that it's going to be sufficiently user-friendly that anybody's going to choose to use our product and won't say, I hate this product and I'm not going to use it. I'm going to go to a competitor. Mm -hmm. So there's other levels of testing we have to do. Uh, similarly, you know, there's the example of, you know, there was, I won't name them, but there was a large diabetes manufacturer who had their system go down for, for like a couple of days. People couldn't get up. So even, there, I gather there were some safety risks for that, but even if there weren't, 
if you can't use the system, the end user doesn't care. They can't use their system. They don't care whether or not it's a safety function. So you, you've really got to treat these things writ large as, it's almost like, uh, what would, how would I want my mother to be treated? Yeah. <laughs> my wife used to be the, uh, the, the uh, chief compliance counsel at an organization called Cancer Treatment Centers of America, which was, I think, one of the few healthcare organizations in America, providers, that from day one had patient-centered truly baked into their founding DNA. And they worked on what they called the mother principle, which was anytime you made a decision at that organization, you were supposed to ask yourself, is this how I want, want, want my mother to be treated? Because that was the founding motivation of the person who, who, who started the organization. Wow, so oh, that, that's awesome. It, it, it links directly back to our, our values. So I know we are running very short on time, but Ed, I appreciate you joining us and uh, being patient. So please briefly share what you have in mind. Unmute your mic. Okay, Naveen. Uh, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I thank uh, Randy for being here. Uh, well, like and and uh, uh, boosting the, the participation in standards and, and other working groups. And uh, that's that's really important. I try to do the same thing when I get around. Um, and then, uh, David, you mentioned uh, Nancy Levison. She's got a great book out uh, about system thinking applying to safety. And it's called Engineering a Safer World. And um, she's got lots of great examples in there of, of things that we should be doing. But my takeaway from all of my experience in this discussion is we got to get away from the silo mentality of uh, product development and maintenance and um, and get into a uh, team perspective where you have all the different um, areas of uh, development, uh, human factors. Uh, we have um, the users involved. We have uh, the risk management people. We have uh, just a ton of different uh, people involved in, in product development yeah. because it has become such a cross-functional uh, activity. You know, when software was introduced, that was maybe a, a first indication of what's coming. Yeah. Is there's a whole different category of, of uh, people that are now involved in, in product development. So we've got to get away from the idea that we hand it over to the engineers and they'll develop something. Yeah. We've got to have participation from the very beginning with, with people that understand the uh, all the stakeholders that are involved and bring their participation in, yeah. so that we do develop a good product. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's my position here. So you know, and I think you you bring this up because this theme we have been hearing this theme of breaking the silo mentality and collaboration in the last thirty weeks or so. We have had these conversations. I think this is really a very good idea for all of us to embrace. One thing I will share with you guys, I believe our industry has one of the best people. We are so capable. All it takes is for us to realize that this is a new world. And this is the new world we are trying to bring. So I know, guys, we are running short on time. I'm going to wrap it up very quickly. I want to give Randy just a couple of minutes to think about two or three key points we can take away from our conversation today. But yeah, I want to I, I share with you in the meantime just two quick announcements or, or housekeeping announcements. One is, like always, we are recording. This conversation and our recording will be available on the Let's Talk Risk newsletter. You know how to sign up for that. There's a link in the event 
page here. You can sign up and be informed. And we have actually just posted 25 of the past conversations and uh, uh, recordings of those. So take a look at those. Finally, I want to invite all of you to raise your hand and say, you know, we have something to share. We have insights to share. And we would like to be a part of this conversation. Please reach out to me if you want to be a guest speaker. There's no preparation required. No slides. No big conversations. It's just willingness to show up and share your insights. With that, Randy, please go ahead and share just two or three key points that we can take away from this conversation today. I'll do that. I think I mostly get a key off of what Edwin said. Um, Edwin, it's great to hear from you. First of all, I want to give a shout out because Edwin is one of a core group of people I've met who seem to carry an inordinate amount of the proactive burden of getting uh, standards and things done in medical device software. And I actually, frankly, worry that when a number of them start to re retire in the coming years, that if we don't have people who step in to really be, um, as Pat calls it, verbs instead of nouns, yeah. things are going to slow down at a time and they really can't. Um, so that's one pitch again, is just get involved and solve problems, you know, step up. It's fun. It's challenging. Yeah, it's also frustrating and annoying, but there's a lot of good that comes out of it. Yeah. Um, second one, Edwin, to your point about, you know, disciplines working together. I would also say that I think we need to get out of this mode where the general counsel says, well, I don't really understand the AI stuff. And the engineer says, well, I don't really understand the top. Like we all, it's not that everybody needs to be able to do every job. I don't expect the regulatory person to be able to code <laughs> in a dark hour and plug in. But I do think we need to understand enough about each other's disciplines that we can have a sniff test and push back and find common language. Because if we know nothing, we're talking past each other. And for these kinds of things that require interdisciplinary work, it's no longer to say enough to go, yeah, I handle the regulatory, but I don't really understand that cloud stuff. The cloud engineers do it. That doesn't work. And an example I'll give is I recently sat in on a briefing. Somebody had hired a firm to do a research paper about AI policy and med tech. I won't say anything beyond that. Mm -hmm. But it became very clear to me as I listened to the report that the people who had done the report did not even have a basic grasp of the concepts of AI. And therefore, I frankly wasn't comfortable in anything they were saying because when they went out and did interviews, I'm not sure they understood what they were asking to know if people are even answering the same question. Uh -huh. You know, we've got to get in. We're all going to have to get a little more into everybody else's business and just to understand it to make it work together. So continued learning, you know, keep learning. Yeah. Remain it, curious. It, it remains outside your core one. You have to learn the ancillary disciplines. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, get connected with people and, you know, talk to them, ask questions. Guys, this has been so yeah, yeah. But it's the Toyota way. Ask why five times. Yeah, guys, this has been so fascinating. I love the energy. I love the excitement. Randy, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and inspiring. I I feel inspired. I feel inspired by your conversation and sort of call to action. I hope uh, all of our colleagues and the audience will uh, really be inspired by that as well. And everybody, all of you guys who joined us here today to share your thoughts and insights, I want to thank all of you. With that, uh, everybody have a good weekend ahead and we're going to see you again next Friday. Take care, everyone, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.